This episode is sponsored by Fracht. Fracht means freight in German. Founded in 1955 in Basel, Switzerland as a freight forwarder, the company has grown and evolved to become a global logistics provider for many industries. Specifically for oil and gas, the company manages the complex movement of large industrial equipment used in our offshore production platforms, all the way to MRO, rope soap and dope, and chemicals. For more information, find them at www.frochtgroup.com. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, the Chief Sustainability Officer for FRAC, a global logistics provider with an unflinching commitment to sustainability and ESG, and where we are collaborating with our customers and our suppliers to deliver innovative, sustainable supply chain solutions. Matt Oberdorfer, the CEO of a company called Embassy of Things, is joining me today for this episode of ESG Energize. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Delfina. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to be on the show. <laughs> I'm glad you're excited because I'm excited as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt is the author of five books. He is a prolific writer, speaker, and the person that people turn to when they have challenges when it comes to digital transformation. And his upcoming book, The Trailblazer's Guide to Industrial IoT, will be available for your purchase very soon. So Matt, can we just jump right in and tell me, first of all, this new book, Trailblazer's Guide to Industrial IoT, why'd you write it? Uh, Delfina, this is an answer to just a lot of experiences that I had in the real world with real people um, involved in, in digital transformation projects where things went wrong. You know, everything seems to be going right. They have, you know, we have, you know, for instance, uh, uh, great startups with AI and machine learning technology that wanted to improve some you know, industrial asset um, in oil and gas and the POC went great, but then um, ultimately it never actually transformed into anything. Uh, and so uh, there were large digital transformation projects that also got stuck. Some of the bigger ones, uh, you know, a few years back, um, there were just huge investments of, of huge companies um, and they involved so many people never went anywhere so this book is an answer um to that problem you know what happened why did these projects fail and what can you potentially do to not land in that place right so that that, that was really the trigger and it really evolved over time first it was kind of more a thought and then i thought you know there, there are so many similar stories and journeys and problems that you know if, if you can in some way put it together as a book then it might be really valuable and helpful for people that tr that, that are attempting to uh, successfully implement a digital transformation project fantastic uh, you're you're singing my song this is definitely a problem that most companies have and with all the best intentions 
and with tr- people with tremendous skills uh, and the desire and the, the economic wherewithal to make a transformation happen fail anyway. And it's nice to know that somebody took the time to document how can we, how can we help ourselves? And I think that right now today, if I don't, if you wouldn't mind me probing your brain for this on this topic of digital transformation, as it relates specifically to the world of sustainability and in the energy transition and companies talking about their desires to get to net zero, where and how are you seeing this digital component playing in that space? So I think the digital component and specifically technologies um, that are currently on the horizon are going to be a have have very big impact to achieve um, sustainability as well as you know transforming uh, into into cleaner energy. What I mean with this is ultimately what what's the, the, the world is growing, the population is growing. We're gonna need more energy, right? So there will be not less sources of fuel or less sources of energy but there should be less emissions, less, you know, problems that actually impact our environment in the world, right? Yes. So how can you have a growing demand for energy and, 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 and you know, have, you know, all these systems that have been set up, you know, historically over the last, you know, 70 decades, 80 decades, um, and how can we make them really um, environmentally friendly? And so I think that's where technology comes in. So, you know, there, there has been already attempts to do digital oil fields, I think, 30 years ago. Uh, but, you know, today it's a little bit different. It's not just, oh, let's digitize everything and, and make it all kind of work with computers and, you know, have some, you know, cool 3D model. But it really is about how can we use technology to make it sustainable, so to have a net zero footprint and, and all that stuff. And I think that the technology that has been invented uh, in the last uh, few years and is currently on the horizon is so powerful, specifically in the AI and machine learning space, that it will be able to um, predict and, and forecast the, you know, when a machine is going to fail, why it's going to fail, what are you going to need to uh, to do to maintain it, and what it what it needs to reduce emissions and reduce flaring and you know all these things? Right. So from a technology perspective, we live in a super exciting time uh, because we will be able to do these things that you know even ten years ago nobody would was able to even think that it's possible. Right. So for me, very exciting time, um, and at the same time. Uh, the human component and the organizational components of these projects um, are still the same. So uh, th- th- there are different components uh, involved to make a project successful. But in terms of technology, we are looking, you know, um, into a very bright future. So let me see if I can unpack that a little bit more. You talked about two very important things. You talked about um, AI and the technology, and then you talked about the human component. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there one of the things that you, that you talk about that you lay out in this book 
and that you also concentrate on in your your professional life and helping customers is in using AI, using information to the cloud, using this information technology to be able to support the decisions that organizations can take if they have the information available to them that will allow us to catch emissions before they happen, minimize emissions, or minimize a equipment that is going to, the, the efficiency of equipment that could be involved in emissions. Am I getting this correct? Yes, you're absolutely correct. So the, the, big, you know, the big breakthrough that happened in the last couple of years is that AI kind of got upgraded. It's like AI version 2.0. Okay. Right? And, and let me explain what, um, what the big deal actually is, for, I mean, from my perspective. Um, so the you know, previous methods of machine learning were very good at being trained on historical data and I'm specifically talking about sensor data that coming from industrial machines and industrial sensors, and then detecting anomalies from it, right? So you, let's say you have a oil well and there's a plunger going up and down, you have tubing pressure, static pressure, you have differential pressure, you have flow rate, you have all these pressures. And, and, um, and so something happens you know, to the oil well. You know, plunger is off, cycle is off, whatever. So previously in AI 1.0, you could detect this automatically and say, hey, we have a problem, right? Um, it, it was really good at that. With the newer version 2.0 of AI, and we can dive very deep into this topic, um, you can basically predict the future. You can um, literally generate the events that are going to happen to a well and when it's going to happen. And you also will get an indicator of the certainty of that predicted event. So it's kind of like, yeah, well, this oil well will actually experience this problem at that time. And, you know, we are 50% certain that that's a correct uh, prediction, right? So that's very, very different from the AI version 1.0, where you can say, oh, we just detected there's a problem currently, right? So when where this comes from is, you know, everybody talks about chat GPT, right? Now, that that is not applicable to, you know, industrial systems per se, because it's based on large language models, right? So this is a text-based, generative, uh, pre-trained um, transformer model, chat, G-P-T. Right. Generative pre-transformer model. And they generate text and they consume text. Now, none of the sensors that um, are in any industrial field produces text. They all produce numerical data and maybe Boolean data, you know, trues and false and statuses on and off on, you know, whatever, right? So, however, there are also generative pre-drained transformer models for floating point, real-time, and time series data, which sits in the SCADA systems and it sits in the data historians, right? So with the help of those 
they are kind of comparable to ChatGPT. The only difference is they are actually not made for text, but for time series data. You can basically train models to understand um, the existing, let's say you're a big oil and gas company, you have tens of thousands of oil wells, you basically train a model on that. You can basically literally predict which ones are gonna fail when, you know, and and one other part of these predictions on what kind of failure events are you gonna um, experience, right? You will get an indicator of how certain it is for each of them. So that will help you to, if you're an operator, to determine, you know, what type of preemptive maintenance you do. Where should you go first? What's your route going to look like? You know, what do we have to, what's the top priority, right? It's, it, it basically helps operators to prioritize what they should be doing. Now you can add the uh, component of environment and environment friendly and, and cleaner into it and say, how can we optimize the entire field, the entire pad or whatever it is they want to optimize on reducing emissions, Right? How do we, you know, can we forecast the events that actually would be environmentally unfriendly? Right. So there, there's a lot of things that you know this new type um, kind of version 2.0 of AI can do that the previous AI could not do. And this is where we just at the start. Right. This is just coming out. Like JetGPT just came out. Right. This technology is just coming out. So that's why I said. Um, uh, you know, earlier, you know, before the show to you that we are, you know, there's a, there, there's light at the end of the tunnel in terms of technology. We have something coming towards us and it's really able to help us um, in in uh, in our field and and uh, with sustainability. Well, we we all are working in the industry. We all are working very hard towards uh, attacking the energy transition and the problem of emissions. And we all, re re we all recognize that despite our desires, that technology is still evolving and we are going to have the benefit of, of that evolution as we move forward. But we have to invest and we have to take the time to do that. So the first question that I have for you is, are you seeing, are you seeing a sufficient number of organizations going down this path and being brave enough to take the first step forward? I think the answer is yes. First, let me say, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, I, you know, see and have been involved with in the last, you know, uh, decade in projects where organizations go down that path. Um, so I would say in the last two years, it has been a complete uptick, right? In, in terms of successes, um, you know, before that, there were a lot of companies that tried and tried and tried, and they had some little successes. But today I'm seeing big companies that massively involve their organizations to uh, basically say, okay, we're going to do this. Like one simple term is, you know, you can, you know, get on the boat and do this with us or you get off the board, which means you basically leave the company. I mean, that that type of pressure, it, it was not there even five years or 10 years ago. There was more like a, you know, a little bit a side project or, or some sort of, you know, let's play around, let's hire some digital, uh, some chief digital officer with no power, no money, no people, which is meant to fail 
in the first place because nobody's going to do anything that guy says, right? <laughs> um, which I've seen yeah, too, right? Yeah, it's like, that's right, okay, that's right. Um, so, but no, that that definitely changed for uh, for, for large, yeah, specifically not just for little, but for large companies. So there, there's these projects that are currently going on. So let me, let's go down that path for, for a second about uh, digital projects, IoT projects that fail. And we all know that many IoT projects fail. Is it is it always because they weren't set up properly to begin with, or are there other pitfalls uh, that that you've seen? And what do we do about it? How do um, we guarantee success? <laughs> that that that's a billion dollar question, right? Um, so that's that's and that's partially what I'm trying to do in this book to kind of describe how you can potentially do it. So back to your question, is it always the setup? No, um, that's definitely not uh, the, 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 the problem. I think uh, in terms of what are the, some of the you know biggest failures or the biggest reasons why these projects fail is um, that um, you have, um, uh, companies that start digital transformation projects without focusing on the use case. They just say, okay, let's, let's start with a project. Let's tr transform our company. But at the same time, let, let's not touch any running system, let, not, not any business system, whatever. They start with, let's create a solution that will solve all the use cases we have. So there is a death by discovery session at the very beginning. Okay. <laughs> where they're basically building use cases, you know, everybody and their grandmother and their dog and the flea and the dog <laughs> comes up with a use case. And, and then um, they are trying to build something that's kind of really the, the boil the ocean approach. That typically is, is destined to fail. Right? Because, first of all, th 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 there's no such solution. It's kind of like you built a building um, and, and you want it to be a hotel, a apartment building, a business building, uh, a, you know, school and something else too, right? So it's, it's like, you got to first kind of decide what you want. It could be a hospital, who knows, right? <laughs> so what do you want to build it for? Like you definitely have to, and you cannot build it for everything, you know, starting it with one specific area of use cases where you built this for. Um, is, is, is very important. If you try anything that goes beyond that and, and do the polyosha much, that's one big problem. The other one is that, um, I would say the second one is that people absolutely um, misjudge and not do, don't understand still the IT, OT, divide the convergence or what I call it in the book, the ITOT chasm, right? They all basically say, okay, let's, let's try out some AI, some machine learning and see if we can do anything cool with machine learning. But the fact that if you really want to have a system in production that pulls in data from the field, that's remote, that might be connected over satellites, that goes through different hops and the satellite connections break down, they go into, you know, a DMC from there, you know, whatever, they're so different, that, that it's not just 
the internet today where you know kids can connect to the internet and works right in the energy industry there's a lot of cybersecurity there are a lot of different measures to prevent access right so to get a solution running you need to be able to get data from ot from the operational side to it and back if it doesn't go back then when that is completely against the Purdue model, because it goes from level zero up to level one, blah, 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 it never goes really back, you know, to mm-hmm. actually do set points or other stuff, right? So how do you solve these things? And these are really much bigger problems than the AI. I mean, um, uh, you know, one of my friends said, you know, AI is 20% of, of the problem. The OTIT convergence slash, you know, chasm to actually solve solve that uh, is 80% of the problem, right? So by focusing on the wrong thing, like in one of the projects recently, they are like, let's first build the AI model based on some historic data that we're going to upload, you know, through some, I don't know, you know, um, t- uh, uh, you know uh, one big load up, upload action with an FTP system or something like that. But they upload the entire history and then they're building one, machine learning model and then they demonstrate to um to their leadership that they can actually do some cool ai stuff that's a kindergarten project that will not go anywhere it's meant to fail it's destined to fail because even if you show oh yeah we can say five percent you can never productize and operationalize it because that whole setup was just a one-time thing to demonstrate that you can train an ai model but it's not something that can be used ever in production. In production, you need real-time data to flow in every day, all the time. <laughs> yeah. And then you need also a mechanism to take that insight and bring it back to the operators. Like I was involved in another project where the data goes back to the operator and the operators like, look at the dashboard. They're like, the wrong font. It's the wrong font. The wrong and, font. And the, the wrong font. Or even better, the lines on the chart, you know, tubing pressures are wrong color. That one should be green and the other ones. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to use it. <laughs> it's like, so, so I, I know. But that's, but it's, that's it's not like, even, but that's not a, te- that's a, not a technology issue. That's a people issue. Yeah. Right. That's I mean, understanding your ultimately, user. Ultimately, I think that the people and the processes are the main cause of the digital transformation project not going through. Agreed 100%. The processes and the people and the organizations, you know, that the people are in, they don't want to change. I mean, people, specifically, they work in a big company. It doesn't really matter if it's industrial or oil and gas or, you know, something else. They don't want to have a change unless it's a change to their salary to the apple, you know. <laughs> but uh, but that's common. So, that's common no matter what type of project that you're talking about. If your metrics and exactly. reward system is not aligned with what your objectives and what you're trying to achieve, you're doomed to fail, right? Exactly. And that's the problem with OT and IT because the OT, the operations is measured to keep the systems running, producing the stuff they produce and making sure. And yes, they want to improve it and so on. But... Um, they are too busy. Like there's this cartoon that um, a friend of mine shows in his presentation that has basically a, a couple of cavemen like pulling 
a little cart and the cart has wheels that are basically uh, rectangles. Mm-hmm. That's its way. There's another caveman that's that's kind of trying to hand them a wheel that's round, right? Yes. And they're like, we are too busy. Yes. You know, like, don't bother us. We are too busy pulling the cart. Yeah. So they're not even taking the freaking round <laughs> wheel. It's much easier to do it, right? That's, but that's that's a typical problem, right? So the the back to you, the KPIs, the the way how this organization is measured is, yes, they want to improve, but at the same time, they are measured on not improving; they are measured on running. Right, that's this exactly is, right. That's exactly right. Okay, so give it, give us. I'm going to ask you to do two things for me. Give us, give us the bottom line. How how do we avoid common death traps and and landmines? What What's the the one, two, three of it? You say to me, Delphina, got to get this first right. You got to get this right. You got to get this right. And that at least gives you a fighting chance. So I'm going to ask you that question. And then I would love if you would give my listeners a case study or two of some success stories or maybe some failures that inform a success story. Yes, yes, yes. So first, uh, in, in, in order to be really um successful the the biggest the biggest story is or the biggest starting point is you have to uh, define a use case and i would i would personally not even start with a list of three i would start with one use case right okay define that a little bit further would the is the use case something that is mission critical or is the use case something that's more benign? Which one should they start with? Very good question. It's a very good question. So, it's, and it, this is this is per, I love uh, this is perfect, right? <laughs> use case selection, right? So, typically, if you do a session uh, with a company and you discover all the use cases, you you know a, a lot of big consulting companies do that um, and do death by discovery sessions. Uh, where you get everything out, so and so. Okay, I've been part of those. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the first thing people say, ah, oh, the one with the biggest business impact. Wrong. You shouldn't do the one with the biggest business biggest business impact. Here's the deal, right? You should do the one that leads to the quickest win for the company. Could be a smaller one, but you can do this within. A month or two months or three months. It's not a two-year project. You start with something small and you do it end-to-end. You connect all the way from the operational system to all the way to the business system. There has to be real business value attached to it. Otherwise, it's just a pet project. Nobody cares. Nobody, you know, you have to say you have to make money, save money. It has to be real business value. But at the same time, it's an easy one and a fast one to implement, right? So when you do this, even though it doesn't solve all the world's problems and so on, what's going to happen is if you do this in a short amount of time and you come back to leadership, to the rest of your company and say, look, for this use case, we implemented that thing. It works. We are saving this much money. That will become basically your, you know, poster child or your, 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 it gives momentum. Um, it gives you momentum. It proves. It gives you credibility. Mm-hmm. It gives you authority. We have done it once successfully, 
We can do it the second time bigger. We can do it better. We can take the next one on, right? So from all the use cases, you know, you can, you can rank them by business value, but I recommend you rank them also by how fast can you actually get it done. And you use that one, like if you do, you know, basically a, 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 a um, prioritization of, of two columns, right? Uh, you take the one that how easy you're getting it done is number one. And then from all the ones that are that easy, you take the one with the biggest business value, right? That's what I re would recommend. Okay. Now, the, the second part is, and I kind of foreshadowed that already with I, what, what I said is, now that you have this use case, you really have to think about what data and what data models do you need from which systems, right? So, you know, you could have time series data that comes in from SCADA systems, but at the same time, you might also get from SAP additional data that uh, is also the, the necessary for the same asset. And, and you have to basically create some, some sort of, I would not call it digital twin, but you have to have a digital representation of that system for that use case, right? Okay. So now it's not a full like, oh, it's it's looking like a 3D frame of, of um, the physical asset, but it has data from various systems in it to really show that use case. And ultimately uh, from there, you can then go and, and, and start really designing uh, the presentation, the dashboard, the way the operators or the business users or the IT users or whoever's going to actually use that for that use case can absorb it. Maybe you actually don't even do a new dashboard, but you integrated it with existing system. Could also be the case. You don't have to always, you know, create create new you know, visuals on that, right? Or there's, you know, everybody is already into Tableau or Power BI or whatever they use, right? Then you build something that goes into... Um, and, and works with that technology. So ultimately, then the last part is you have to get and work with the actual consumers from the beginning. Okay, I yep. cannot emphasize that enough. If you first build, I was involved in projects where they built a data lake and they had two problems. First, they built a lake and no data. It's like, yeah, let's just first go to IT. We will build a big, you know, kind of data storage thing. And then we actually bring the data in. So, and I'm like, it's called data lake for a reason. First the data, <laughs> then the lake. Uh, the, second, second problem is, the, se <laughs> the second problem is, Sorry. There were no users involved, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so there was a lake without data and without users. Uh, and when the, when the data came in, it became a swamp. And the users, like, <laughs> the users were like, what should I use the stuff for? And I, I can't, I, it has data in it. Yes, it has data in it. It has all the data in it, but it's also missing some data from other systems. So I, it's not usable for me at all, the stuff that you've built here. Yeah. Right? So that's a typical failure, right? So back to that, what I just said, the users have to be, and it had the, the use case drives the conceptual architecture, the fundamental architecture of the components, the fundamental architectures of a, uh, the fundamental architecture drives the, log the logical architecture. The logical architecture, to be clear, is when you see, when you see any slide where, where you, that says architecture mm -hmm, on it, mm -hmm. and it has 
That's a logical architecture. That comes third. It's also a big mistake, big, big problem if, if you say, okay, we do a digital transformation project. And the first thing that people show up is a slide that has is white and has these little logos on it. Wrong. <laughs> they should not stop with that. that that's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, we, again, you know, you want to build something for someone, um, but you don't know what it is and you just start building the building without knowing whether it's going to be a hospital or, uh, you know, business building. You first have to get the use case. Then you have to think about the components you need in architecture. Then you go and build the logical architecture out. And that drives then the physical architecture, which is you actually start, you know, putting computers there, connecting them and so on and so forth. So it all is driven by the use case and by the users um, that, you know, I cannot tell you how many times people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're gonna we we will do that. But first, let's actually get this up and running, and then we talk to the users. Like no. <laughs> so, so do you have a positive yeah. story for us? Do you have a good case study for us? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Share one, please. Um, so, yeah. I mean, um, simple case study is you know I was involved in a project in the last uh, year and a half um, in a. Uh, big Texas Houston based oil and gas company where they wanted to uh, take an old app uh, that was developed, I don't know how many years ago, and they basically wanted to kind of, kind of renew it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and build it on modern technology. And um, it was quite an interesting journey because during this project, uh, we tried out different type of, approaches and um, the team was very agile and um, subscribed to what's called the lean startup methodology, which is failing fast. So there were different kind of threads trying out different type of technologies, different candidates for technologies, different solution approaches. And, you know, ultimately, um, uh, you know, some of them worked, some worked a little bit, some of them didn't work at all. Um, you know, the team basically really kind of rebuilt this app. But in the meantime, it's not just actually rebuilding the app. They basically um, kind of created a new way of IT infrastructure that can be used for all other apps too, right? Because ultimately you are like a discoverer. You're like a a trailblazer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're blazing the trail, a new trail, you know, how things can be done in your organization. And so um, this uh, project ended up with um, actually going in production um, and helping literally operators to prioritize their routes um, in, in their daily work. So that, that was, you know, a, a great project to be involved in. Yeah. When you, when you see how it, when you do it right and you see the success and the outcome yes. and you. And one of the keys here also just to, to, to see is, Another issue in digital transformation projects are too many cooks, you know, too many cooks Good in the point. kitchen. Good and point. And in, in this particular project, the, the team was rather small, but at the same time, it's, it was kind of like almost like the five musketeers, right? So you, you have like specialists <laughs> and they, 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 were, they were able to fight off the, you know, the guards, um, 
the Royal Guards and you know all this other stuff to actually kind of bring it home. Um, but the, the the knowledge and the experience that is needed in a team is huge. But you, you have to have someone that knows IT. You have to have someone that knows OT and how it all works, like in detail, not just for a high level, not on the slide, but somebody that can go into, you know, a historian and and, and connect it. Somebody that can go and uh, configure a VPC, a virtual private cloud system, you know, somebody who has deep knowledge and at the same time can be, you know, very strategic. So if you can get these people into one team and, Work, have them work together. And that's very difficult in large organizations because typically they fall all in different departments yep. and these departments don't talk to each other. So they are not even able to be in the same meeting. And even if they are able in the same meeting, there are so 15,000 other people in the same meeting that they are never having a productive discussion about the, about yeah. what they could be doing, right? So the stars kind of aligned in that case very much. And so that's why I think also it was very successful, uh, very um, fast. Well, I think that it would be uh, remiss of me if I didn't ask you to take just a minute to talk a little bit more about this this book that you have coming out, The Trailblazer's Guide to Industrial IoT, particularly because I already know, I have a preview of the book, to know that you are talking about all of these complex issues in this book, but you are presenting it in a way that a non-IT person can enjoy and can understand, but as well as IT people can grab a hold of it and and get what they need out of it. Am I am I incorrect in the way that I'm describing it? No, yeah, you're not incorrect. <laughs> so. Yes, the, the, the book that, um, as I mentioned, or that, that you mentioned, I mentioned before, is an answer to some of the things that I've seen. And, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's, I structured it very, very different than any, any other industrial IoT book. But it has technology in it. It kind of explains about AI and different, the different version 1.0 and 2.0 of AI. But it's actually a novel. It's a um, it's a story. It's a story that you can follow, and it's it starts with you know a guy in the office, you know, in 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 a big business building in Texas, that looks at his whiteboard, and the whiteboard has a message message for him, and the message says, "Do we need industrial IoT and AI um, to transform our company? And does it help humanity? And you know, what's the deal?" So. It's kind of like, and I mentioned this to do, to you. It's kind of like the one minute manager. So it's a story, and it has a plot. And while you are reading it, you learn about technology, and you learn about you know um, cool you know technologies and all that stuff. Um, but you also learn about the issues that that person who works in a big company is going to face when they embark on the journey to actually build an industrial IoT digital transformation solution while, you know, uh, being torpedoed by another organization in the same company that's kind of competing with them and trying to do the same thing. So there's a lot of 
you know, um, in fighting there's, there's and a, clashing. There's a, of, <laughs> there's a lot of plot in there that kind of explains why these uh, project yes can mm -hmm. potentially fail. That has nothing to do with technology. So the goal was really to to write in a entertaining way, but at the same time being very educational. Well, Matt, I think it's extremely timely right now in our world of discussing the energy transition. We are also very dedicated to it. We are dedicated not just the energy transition, but the social and governance aspects as well. And those of us that are the, the business operators and not the IT people are learning very rapidly that the digital component is critical. And it's, it's scary because those of us that are in positions of, of leadership and authority, we might be a little bit older than the average bear and not as comfortable with how to leverage these, these types of technologies that are before us. So I think that this, this book is timely right now as we are tackling this energy transition. It is timely for those of us that desperately want to move forward faster and to make that available to us pretty soon, uh, I think is you, you've done your service to our <laughs> industry. So when can we expect the book to come out, Matt? When is when are um, people going to be able to get their hands on it? Okay, so it's going to be available on Amazon. It has an ISBN number and it is going to be available on August 22nd. August 22nd. Well, I'm also going to put a link to the website for the book so people can kind of get a, a pre-read of it to see, you know, what the book is, is going to be all about and they can get ready for it. If you don't mind, I'm going to put that. It's I think it's uh, the trailblazersguide.com. Can yes. I put that in the in the show notes? And I'm also going to put a link to your organization, Embassy of Things, in case people want to get in touch with you. And I'm sure people, a lot of people are going to want to get in touch with you after the book comes out because you're going to you're going to get get their get their wheels turning. Yes. So Matt, thank you very much for joining us here on the ES Energy ESG Energize podcast. I can't even say the name of my own show uh, today. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Absolutely. Delfina, it was a pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.